And I'm Ian Silver. Join us on the road to paradise. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Orthodox Logos. My name is Ian Silver and I'm here with my co-host Nathaniel Harmon. Greetings. And today we are going to be diving into both the uh, Arthurian legend of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight and also the abomination that is the Hollywood work of art, also titled The Green Knight. It's almost like Tarantino tried to do it, except the guy that directed it was worse. Because <laughs> I think a Tarantino adaptation of this would actually be interesting. It would yeah. still probably be very bad, but it would be interesting. Or, this uh, one wasn't. or a Guy Ritchie. Because did he did Guy Ritchie done? Snatch. Oh, Lock, really? stock, and, but he also did that one recently. Um, I think it was about King Arthur or his men. I can't remember the name of it. I'll, I'll remember it at some point. But the cinematics were, were better. In my honest opinion, this movie cinematically, as an artist, I loved it. But as far as the story goes, if you are at all familiar with any Arthurian legends or anything that has to do with Sir Gawain, the Green Knight. Or Christianity. Yeah, uh, pretty much. So yeah, we see that. I guess we can we can dive right into it as far as you know the differences. Well, first off, uh, you called to my attention because because we, I guess Ian's seen this movie a couple of times, and last night he convinced me to watch it, and it was one of the more unpleasant experiences of my life. But um, Ian pointed out to me that the portrayal of the green knight in the uh, contemporary film is actually very close to the uh, portrayals of the green man or the spirit of the green man and i don't know anything about that which may come as a surprise to ian so he's gonna have to do the play the role of the scholar for a moment even though i'm not actually a scholar i'm just lazy and i like to read yeah so i'm not you know super versed in in this topic exactly but i do understand who the green man is and going back to my so-called pagan days i've done drawings of it i've you know not worshipped the green man at all in any way i was i was going to say i did just to make just to start the the show off with a did you know no but so the green man is commonly found uh, in many forms throughout history, mostly pagan. And, you know, the common feature of his face is that he's covered by foliage, you know, leaves often sprouting from their mouths, depending on, you know, the, the depiction of them. Also found carved in wood, which is kind of ironic because I did a wood burning of the green man, which I showed Nathan. I will not show you guys, <laughs> and I should probably throw it away. Um, you know, or also stone and in medieval churches and cathedrals, why they were there included the construction of these buildings by masons and perhaps have been lost in the midst of time. Some people suspect that he was a bridge between the new beliefs of Christianity and the pagan beliefs it replaced. Evidence for this crossover of religions could be assumed from the sighting of Christian churches at the site of pagan sacred places. And what we see in this movie and 
in symbolism in general is there's like a lot of crossovers or symbols that were once pagan that have been, you know, turned Christian. Repurposed or uh, exactly. resacralized, resacralized. Or also we see a lot of Christian symbols that have been, uh, you know, turned to be inverted or blasphemed into pagan satanic symbols. And we'll talk about that later when we... Ian is very excited to talk about that. He texted me last night and he's like, hey, did you know? I said, yes, Ian, I did know. <laughs> but it's, it's a fun story. We'll talk about it. Shortly. Yeah. So the term green man is modern in nature, dating back to 1939 or so when Lady Raglan published an article in the Folklore Journal. Um, he's also appeared as Jack in the Green, and there's been uh, a massive revival of these appearances around the date of Beltane or May Day every spring. You'll see pagan festivals. If you go on YouTube, you can look up Jack in the Green. There's a lot of people dressing up as him. Uh, marking a rebirth and the start of the cycle of growth. So with the green man, what we see is it's a way to portray life, death, and rebirth, which, you know, generally speaking, aren't aren't bad things if you look at it in a Christian manner. But when you're looking at life, death, and rebirth in a pagan or magical sense, it completely it's a complete inversion of the Christian. For us, there's life, and you can't talk about life without death and vice versa. And for rebirth, our rebirth would be, you know, baptism. Yeah. Baptism or even on the, on the day of, uh, not the day of judgment, but when Christ returns and we are restored fully Mm -hmm. in our bodies in heaven. Right. So, and then this article says, I'm sure that the green man means different things to different people in this day and age. To many, he represents a figure who is an environmental guardian the keeper of the forest and woods. And here we see, you know, the green, the green people, the climate change freaks probably love the green man. Um, so yeah, so yeah, it's a, it's a pagan deity, a forest deity, a vegetation deity, if you will. And in the adaptation of the green knight, if you've seen it, you will notice that when the green knight enters, he is nothing like the Arthurian legends. He is more pagan, uh, in the way he appears and he looks identical in a lot of cases to the green man with trees growing out of him and foliage. So yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting and I didn't realize it today. I was like, I have seen, I see what they're trying to do. I've seen this before and it's just another inversion in the film that takes away from, you know, the original poem. Right. Thank you for that, Ian. Like, like I said a minute ago, um, I did not know anything about the green man. I've seen the face before. I've seen the carvings. Um, it's notable for an obsession with oak leaves, actually. Yeah. His hair or his beard is composed typically composed of oak leaves. But um, I did not know that's who that was. Um, yeah, again, what I'll do is uh, I'm going to throw some pictures in the video so you guys can see who... The Green Man is. There's tons of poems and stuff about him. There's also a song by Jethro Tull called Jack in the Green. Hmm. Um, Robin Hood, it even goes into, you know, stuff about Robin Hood. And yeah, there's a lot of a lot of information on the Green Man. It's it's quite interesting. And everybody has different opinions on it, but they definitely were pulling pulling from that and tried to incorporate it. I'm not sure if it's just because this this movie was made in the frame of modernity and there was some sort of symbolism, you know, like maybe they were trying to somehow put something about climate change in there or worshiping nature, 
you know? So right. Well, who that, knows? that I think is fairly certain, but we'll definitely talk about that a little bit later. I know, um, for those of you who follow Jonathan Pajo, he did a, I believe it was a two part video series. Um, it was fairly short, actually. It was only like 30 minutes, 35 minutes all told. But he did a uh, an analysis of Sir Gowan and the Green Knight um, from, from a symbolic point of view that was pretty interesting, as I recall. But I only listened to it once because that pure symbol- symbolic aspect um, of analysis that he, d- that he does, while it's interesting, isn't something that pulls my attention as much as it pulls Ian's. Yeah, I I like it because he had someone you know, bring up the symbolism and how much they loved it. And I think the first thing he said was, I'm going to ruin this for you. (laughs) And he just went, went off and, you know, explained that yes, there's symbolism. And this is something we talked about, Mm -hmm. but the symbolism is bad, is bad. You know, (laughs) not that it's, you know, not that it's not, doesn't have to do with the story, but the way they're portraying it, if you have seen the movie and if you've read the legend, it's completely different. So with that being said, the poem, Nathan, as, as we've talked about, is a poem and a story and a legend based on, you know, heroism, virtue, and honor, and we see the complete opposite in the movie. So if you want to, we can start with a, a brief summary of what the story is for those who haven't read it or seen it, and we'll just give a, a quick summary if you'd like. Or So how I'd like to start this, if it's agreeable with you, yeah. is with the setting, because this is the problem with the movie is the setting is wrong from the get-go. So I will use Tolkien's translation of Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, and there's a bit that's discussing the setting for a couple of, for several lines. So we'll go over that very quickly, and then we'll give a brief synopsis of the, of the poem and then move on to the film, and we'll go from there. Hopefully we don't bore you too terribly much, and if I stumble over my words, forgive me, I'm not the best at reading publicly. Uh, let me see if I can find the section. Uh, so yeah, we're also, like I said before, figuring out the audio video aspects. Um, there might be a little lag. I apologize. We're, we're trying to dial that in. I'm not sure what the issue is, but bear with us. And if it's too much for you, if you're the type of person like me who notices it, then this will be available on Spotify and Apple. And if you're the type of person who can't tell the difference between somebody filming with a potato and someone <laughs> filming with an actual camera like this guy, enjoy. So that's where we're at. So you can film with a potato? You wouldn't be able why to would, tell. Why would you not tell me this? <laughs> okay. Anything you filmed would look as if it's been filmed with a potato. That's why I don't film. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Well, New Year, well, New Year was yet young, and yester eve had arrived. That day, double dainties on the dais were served. When the king was there, come with his courtiers to the hall, and the chanting of the choir in the chapel had ended. With loud clamor and cries, both clerks and laymen, Noel announced anew and named it full often. Then the nobles ran anon with New Year gifts. Hansels and Hansels, they shouted, and handed them out. Competed for those presents in playful debate. Ladies laughed loudly, though they lost the game. And he that won was not woeful, as may well be believed. All this merriment they made till their meat was served. Then they washed and mannerly went to their seats. Ever the highest for the worthiest, as was held to be best. Queen Guinevere the gay was, with grace in the midst. Of the adorned dais set, dearly was it arrayed. Finest sendal at her sides, a ceiling above her. Of true tissue of Toulouse and tapestries of Darcia. 
that were embroidered and bound with the brightest gems, one might prove and appraise to purchase for coin any day. That loveliest lady there on them glanced with eyes of gray, that he found ever one more fair, in sooth might no man say. But Arthur would not eat until all were served. His youth made him so merry with the moods of a boy. He liked light-hearted life, so loved he the less, either long to be lying or long to be seated. So worked on him his young blood and wayward brain. And yet another rule, moreover, was his reason besides, that in pride he had appointed, it pleased him not to eat upon festival so fair, ere he first were apprised of some strange story or stirring adventure, or some moving marvel that he might believe in, of noblemen, knighthood, or new adventures, or a challenger should come, a champion seeking, to join with him in jousting, in jeopardies to set his life against life, each allowing the other the favor of fortune, or she fairer to him. This was the king's custom, whenever, wherever his court was holden, at each famous feast among his fair company and hall. So his face doth proud appear, and he stands up stout and tall, all young in the new year, much mirth he makes withal. Yes, yeah, so for people that can't understand a single word of that, <laughs> like me, break it down a little bit if if you can after you after you get that going in regards to the setting in the story and the setting in the beginning of the movie because in the beginning of the movie the first thing we see is Sir Gawain in a whorehouse right you know and that is not at all in the legend they they immediately want to portray him as licentious exactly someone who has already succumbed to temptation and who's a drunk you know I'm not saying maybe he didn't enjoy his ale as most knights did in these days, but the first scene for him to be drunk in a whorehouse versus what on, you've on read a feast day. Yeah. The first, the first scene is actually the woman who he's sleeping with throws water on him and says, Christ is born. And he replies, Christ is born and chases her like, stay here, stay with, stay with me. Let's just stay here. I think he says, you know, like he doesn't want to go to mass. He doesn't want to go. Doesn't want to go to church. Yeah. So that versus what you just read, if you could maybe explain the setting that is actually true or, you know, truer to the Christian perspective. So, so it's important to note in the setting that it is a feast day that is being celebrated appropriately. One of the first things you see is people running around shouting, Noel, Noel, right? Christ is born. Christ is born. And additionally, and I'm, I'm going to keep this brief, um, but additionally, you also see that gifts are being given um, that King Arthur serves his knights. He does not eat, but his knights are given food because he wants to wait for some miraculous thing to occur. Yeah, he he won't eat a piece of meat until something right. happens. Something interesting happens. Yeah, whether that be a story told of a knight, right? Anything, something happens, and what does happen, you know? Right. Well, some things do end up happening, but the other thing is that, and this will be contrasted later with how the film portrays things. But the other thing to consider is. Guinevere is young and beautiful, and no one in the hall has seen anyone more beautiful than she is. Yeah, she's, she is surrounded by beauty as well. Yeah, she's the fairest in the land, as they, I believe they say, you right. know? And, and King Arthur is young and strong and boisterous, right? And in the movie, they both look half dead. Well, Guinevere is, in the movie, is very haggish. Yeah. <laughs> Not she, to be too terribly... She looks like she hasn't actress. slept in weeks, and yeah, yeah. yeah. So... The setting is one of joy and beauty and celebration of a high feast. As is said later on, it's the feast of God, right? That's yeah. what it's referred to later on in the poem. So that is the setting in the book. But Ian, do you care to 
discuss a little more of what happens in the story because you've you've gone through most of it, I believe, if not all of it. I've read it a couple times. In but... in the book, yeah, yeah. Well, in the story, as you said, you know, all of the knights are feasting. King Arthur will not feast until until something happens, and what we see is that. Am I am I skipping too far ahead by getting to the the Green Knight entering already? Because well, no, the Green Knight should enter. Because I mean, yes. So, so another th- just a bit of housekeeping. Gowan, for anyone who doesn't know, is King Arthur's nephew. Yeah. Right. His, without getting too much into the whole um, origin story for King Arthur, you've got, I believe there are three sisters, but I can't remember all their names off the top of my head. But you have Morgan Le Fay, Morgaus, and Arthur, who is their half brother. Um, the son of Uther Pendragon, whereas they are the daughters of Igraine, who is the wife of the Duke mm-hmm. of Cornwall, whom Uther seduces, but we won't go there. So in the, the setting in this feast is that Guinevere and Arthur are sitting at the high table, and on each side of Guinevere, you have King Arthur's nephews. You have Agravain and you have Sir Gawain. Yeah. And then the Green Knight enters. The Green Knight enters, but... Quite a fellow, if, my, if I may say so. Yeah, so we see in the legend, as it is written, that when he enters, he is a man. He is a monster of a man, but not a monster. He's not, also not quite a giant either. Yeah, the exactly. Is he's giant-ish, but he's not a giant. Yeah, and they describe like the outfit he's wearing, and uh, I believe I mean, we, we could dive into that. But, you know, he's he's dressed... He's dressed regal, you know. He has a certain look about him, a certain vibe, if you will. I know Nathan would love that. No, but in all honesty, the way he enters is not in a way of war. And he even says that. He says, if I was here for war, I would be dressed different. And none of you could withstand me. You're all beardless and young. Exactly. (laughs) None of you could withstand me. But what we see in the movie is when he enters, he is a monster. Like we mentioned before, he looks like the green man. He's got... Um, you know, he's, he's massive and it even looks like his horse is dead or, you know, they try to portray this like zombie like tree man. And, and that's just, that's just not the case. So yeah, with the green Knight entering, we see Morgan Le Fay, who is Sir Gawain's mother, Mm -hmm. but she's not there in the poem. Yeah. So, so, so what happens is the green, the green Knight enters and says who's the lord of the hall right and king arthur says, he waits a second too right. he doesn't immediately say you know i'm i'm the king they're all kind of perplexed like who is this guy? yeah this who's is this strange. guy and arthur eventually said arthur says i'm the king of this hall i welcome you would you like to feast with us and the green knight says no that's not why i'm here and that's when as ian referenced this whole discussion of combat comes up and Arthur says, well, if you, you know, if you want to fight, any one of my knights will fight you. And the Green Knight says, well, no, that's not why I'm here. And he lays this challenge at the feet of all the knights there. And he says, okay, here's my axe. Because that's the other thing. He has this huge bearded axe with him. Yeah. And he says, and it's, and it's a not a knightly weapon. It's a sketchy looking weapon. Seems kind of barbaric. Yeah, he doesn't ride in with a lance, a right. spear, or any anything like that. He's not ready for war. Right. He's ready for a challenge, right. for a game. So he holds up his axe and says, to any knight who accepts my challenge, they can have this weapon. But here's the challenge. Any one of your knights today will get to strike me with this weapon. On the condition that on New Year's Day, 
they will meet me a year from now, and I will return the blow. And so all the knights are kind of like, I don't know what I think about that. And in some translations, you kind of get this notion that they're afraid. But in Tolkien's translation, it comes out a little more clearly that they're all kind of unsure of what to say or what to do because Arthur's the king of the hall, and it kind of seems like he's the one who should be responding to this. But Arthur gets upset because no one responds to the challenge, and the knight starts to mock him. And... I believe he laughs. Right, he laughs at him and starts to call them all a bunch of cowards. And so Arthur goes and takes the axes and about ready to strike the Green Knight with it. And then Sir Gawain says something to the effect of, you know, if you will will it, may I speak, um, I'll take up this challenge. And Arthur allows it. Yeah. And what happens after that? Well, he, he approaches the Green Knight. And I, w- with me, I have both uh, visuals in my head. <laughs> so it's hard for me to kind of... Parse the two? Yeah. So he approaches the Green Knight He's and he... He cuts his head off. Right. But not before he says, before the Green Knight says, okay, I want you to reaffirm this vow that you will uphold the challenge. And the challenge is, you know, you strike a blow, whatever that may be, and in a year... I get to return it. You will seek me out, and I get to return it. And, he, you know, it could be be nothing. It could be him... It could be a scratch. It could be a scratch. It could be him cutting his head off. But, you know, Sir Gawain reaffirms this challenge and accepts it and we'll get into it later how in the movie it seems like he starts to you know oh, the movie is just awful yeah but yeah so he accepts the challenge he grabs the axe and he, he cuts off the green knight's head it falls to the ground blood squirts everywhere um even in the novel they they you know it's fairly graphic <laughs> yeah it's graphic but also before even saying a word the green knight picks his head up and basically says you know Here's where you can find me at the yeah, Green Yeah, I'll see you in a year. <laughs> yeah. And and he picks up the head, and the head is laughing as as he walks right. off, and he, he leaves. He leaves, and it's that's kind of the last image that you're seen with, and the last image that Sir Gawain is it's embedded in his brain, you know. You have to, a year comes pretty quick, as we all know, right. and he, he's and trying. And said in the poem, is, yeah. yeah, you know, years, a year goes very swiftly. Exactly. You can't call it back. Exactly. So that's that's the setting in in but, the in the poem. But but even so, the year goes quickly and eventually and also in the poem, Arthur and Gawain and all the other knights aren't terribly concerned. They're like, well, I mean, yeah. that's interesting. We'll see how this plays out. Because no one's ever heard of this knight before. No one knows who he is, no one knows where the Green Chapel is, even though the Green Knight says Oh yeah, when you come look for me, everyone knows who I am and everyone knows where the chapel can be found. Yeah, he takes the challenge almost as if it's a joke. You know, right. like, this is going to be the last time I see this guy. He mm-hmm. does, He's not taking it completely right. seriously. And then it starts to set in, you know, more and more. Right. And he goes out. And so, Ian, I know this was some, This is the bit that you're super psyched about. So I'll, I'll leave it to you. And the, the passage I have bookmarked here is the, the one concerning his armoring. But the next interesting portion is the... Is the occurs as Gawain is setting out, right? He's yeah. armored up. He's, his equipment is fantastic. His horse is a, is a his charger is a, is a beautiful horse that's very well armored as well. Gringolette, um, I believe, yep. is the horse's mm-hmm. name. Yep, not to be compared with. Well, I won't make a joke about Spanish. Yeah, Gringo. Yeah, and they're <laughs> they're both adorned in the most miraculous. You know, I think it's silk and emeralds and mm-hmm. stuff that so took. Gawain has 
diamonds on his yeah. on his uh, the circlet that's on his helmet, like very beautifully appointed. They they say I think in the story that it's something that would have taken seven winters to be made. Mm-hmm. So you know this was he and others. A lot of people were like, "This is what you're going to wear to die." Well, that's just his armor. Yeah, well, he's a glorious looking knight. Yeah, but one of one of the very interesting things is his shield. And Ian, what is special about his shield, and what does it say about Sir Gawain? Because I know you were super psyched to discuss this. Yeah, I think the symbolism in this is is pretty epic, and especially the way that you know when you first see it, and even on our Instagram page, I posted a picture, um, you know, with a brief description of what we're going to be talking about and you see Sir Gawain with a, a pentangle not a pentagram I mean I guess we can kind of get into that but a pentangle which is a five-point star that is on one side that is on the back side I believe it's on the front of his shield on the front of his shield yeah on the front of his shield and on the inside is an image of the mother of God the Theotokos it's an icon of the Theotokos yeah it's exactly it's, it's quite explicitly said that it's painted Yes, yeah, so a lot of people, when they see this, and the way the movie portrayed it, um, I'm not sure, but they were they were showing the pentangle at the same time as they were showing like a shamanic pagan ceremony. And I'm not sure if they were trying to uh, make a contrast between both, but the way they showed it was a very dark, it was very dark imagery. It didn't show the virtue, um, you know, what it means. And well, it, what, what, what does a pentagram symbolize or a pentangle symbolize? A pentangle in, in the way... The knights wore it, and not in the way that uh, you know punk rock kids or blue-haired people that work at Starbucks like to portray it. It represents the five virtues and how they are always, always together. They're always entangled together. We have the five virtues, also, which would be generosity, uh, chastity, courtesy, fellowship or friendship, and and piety. And we also know that it represents the five wounds of Christ and the five joys of Mary, the mother of God. To whom Sir Gawain is particularly devoted, as we see with him having an icon on yeah. the inside of his shield, because one of the things that the poem also talks about... Which is, which we don't see in the movie, right. I don't think at all. Well, you see the icon once or twice. Yeah, but other stuff, you know, the right. praying to the mother of God. Right. But one of the things that's said in the poem is, whenever Gawain is shall we say, feeling that his luck is pressed or whenever he's becoming discouraged, especially in battle, he looks at the icon of the Mother of God, he hoists his shield, looks at the icon of the Mother of God, and that yeah. strengthens him again. Do you have that passage? If you, I, I do have something that I want to read, and it talks about the pentangle, and it says, they then brought him his shield. This is after he's been you know, fully armored. Fully armored. They then brought him his shield that was bright ghouls, ghouls, jewels, G-U-L-E-S, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, with the pentangle, charged on it in pure gold. He took it by the baldric and slung it around his neck, and it was the last fitting touch in his splendid array. And why the pentangle was Gawain's special emblem must be explained, even though the story waits. It is a sign that Solomon devised of old as a token of fidelity, of which it is a fit emblem. For it is a figure that has five points, and each line in it overlaps and locks with another. And wherever you start on it, it is endless. And everywhere the English call it the endless knot. So it was fitting for Gawain and his famous device... Since Gawain was known for a good knight, faithful in five ways and five times in each way, he was like refined gold, pure from any vileness, and radiant with all virtues, which, again, in the movie, even though... Unequivocally the, not the case. Yeah, the first scene is him, you know, like in a brothel. Said, yeah. Therefore, he bore the pentangle as his emblem, as the truest and gentlest in speech of all the knights. So, yeah, I found that interesting because 
we we see right away in society that there's an inversion of the pentagram and it's like it has it doesn't have anything to do with virtue or or any of the you know the five virtues generosity chastity courtesy fellowship friendship and uh piety you know it's it's a satanic symbol it's been turned into a satanic tan- well, satanic symbol inverted yeah quite and literally. It, exactly yeah but it also originally was not a satanic symbol at all yeah. And we, we see this, like we mentioned earlier, there's a lot of symbols in Christianity that have been taken by the pagans and, and turned into things that are no longer sacred. And there's also things that we have re-sanctified uh, from paganism. So well, you, you'll, you'll hear people say that with the Celtic cross, right? They'll say, yeah. oh, well, that to the Celts, that didn't symbolize the crucifixion of Christ and the redemption of mankind. That That symbolized the intersection of heaven and earth. And I'm like, do you know what the incarnation is? <laughs> it is it quite literally that. Yeah. It's like, congratulations. How does it feel to shoot yourself in the foot with that? Yeah. <laughs> Both fully divine and and fully human, heaven and earth. Right. Uh, as above, so below. Right. So yeah. Which also, funny enough, at the old place we lived at, that was our neighbor's Wi-Fi password, and they're great people, but they're not they're not Christian at all. Right. But it's like even things like sayings like "as above, so below." It's like those have been taken. You know, taken away from a Christian perspective. Well, they, the pagans try to take those away from Christianity, and it's like they go, "Yeah, we're going to turn this back to its original meaning." And it's like, well, the original meaning, as you call it, is one not a thing that even really exists, in the sense that they mean, because they're trying to be both, shall we say, neo-pagan, but also very um, uh, historically minded, scientifically historically minded, which is hilarious. But yeah, if you go back to, quote-unquote, the original usage or the original meaning, that's going to lead you back to Christ because, interestingly, it didn't stay in the original interpretation for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> um, and but what we were saying earlier, like, the film is a complete opposite of the poem. Right. And we can—I uh, don't know if you want to touch on this first, about how, you know, he succeeds in all of the tests— Mm-hmm. Minus minus the last one. We'll, we'll move on a little bit in the narrative, but once once he's armored, yeah, he goes he goes out and he goes out on Michaelmas, which for anyone who doesn't know is September 29th, if my memory is correct. Let me check my notes. Yeah, September 29th. So interestingly, the beginning of autumn. Yeah, right. So he he goes out and he spends what we find out later is three and a half months more about three months or just shy of three months trying to figure out where this green chapel is. And he passes out of Wales, Logress as they call it in this story, he passes out of King Arthur's country. And eventually after many adventures, which include fighting, what what, what does he have down? Um, Yeah. Wild, wild boars, bears, beasts, dragons, Trolls, ogres, <laughs> yeah, exactly. A whole, a whole slew of things, you know. All of the monsters. <laughs> sleep, sleeping in his armor in the cold, mm-hmm. uh, praying to the mother of God for shelter. All these right. things that we we don't see at all in the right. film. Full. And, and what I was going to say is that the whole story is full of challenge and temptations, mm-hmm. you know, of which he overcomes. Right, and it's so after a long time. So so he's. I'm wanting to say it's Christmas Day actually. Yeah. It's Christmas Day, and as far as his, his prayers go, which this is one of numerous times when he prays. He prays to the Mother of God, and I believe it's to St. Julian. But he also says, um, 
an Our Father, a Hail Mary, and he prays the Creed, right? The Nicene yeah. Creed. And he said he asks God to provide him shelter and a place to attend Mass. That's what's foremost on his mind. He doesn't want to be without the services and the sacraments on this feast day. So on, on Christmas, on the, on the Nativity of Christ, or the Feast of God as his soon-to-be host will refer to it. And lo and behold, not ter- terribly long after praying this, he finds this this massive castle, the most beautiful castle that he's ever seen. And he seeks shelter there and he's granted shelter and he meets the Lord of the castle. Yeah. And that's where the story gets really, really interesting. Not to say that it hasn't been prior. Yes. So there's uh, a passage in here that I want to read about when he's traveling. It says the night on Gringolet passed on his way beneath them. Um, and he, and it's referring to, uh, Birds that sat shivering on bare twigs, piping a pitiful little song as the cold nipped them, through the swamp and mire all by himself, and troubled about how he was to keep Christmas if he could not manage to see the due service of the Lord, who on the same night was born of a maiden to heal all our sorrows. And so with a sigh he said, I beseech you, Lord Christ and Mary, gentlest mother so dear, to bring me to some shelter where I may devoutly hear the mass and matins tomorrow. Humbly I ask it and say straight straightway, my pater noster mm-hmm. and, the Our Father. and the Our Father and the Creed. He rode on praying as he rode and confessed his sins and crossed himself, saying, The cross of Christ be my good speed. He had crossed himself but three times when he was aware through the trees of a dwelling circled by a moat, standing on a mound that rose from a piece of meadowland, shut in under the boughs of many great trees that closed in round the moat. It was a castle, the fairest that ever a knight owned built in a clearing with a park all round it, and round the park a stout palisade of spikes that took in more than two miles of forest. Gawain looked at the stronghold from that side and saw it shimmering and shining through the fair oaks. And then he reverently took off his helmet and gave devout thanks to Jesus and St. Julian, as Nathan said, gentle Lord and gentle saint who had thus shown him kindness and heard his prayer. Now, said he, grant me good lodging. And with that, he touched Gringolet with his golden spurs and made his way, as chance would have it, to the chief gate which brought him swiftly to the end of the drawbridge, and he saw the bridge firmly pulled up and the gate shut fast and the solid walls that feared no blast of tempest. So yeah, you see in, in the book and in the poem that he's a very devout Christian, praying, asking for help from the it's, saints. This is far from the first reference to yeah, him praying exactly. his devotion to God. Yeah, and the only Quite thing far. that we see, like I've said numerous times in the beginning of the film, is them mocking God in the brothel when the woman throws water on him because he's drunk to wake him up and says, Christ is born. And that's about the only time we see um, anything besides when he's traveling and he decides to get directions from a beggar and doesn't want to give the beggar any money. And he doesn't, you know, he's not, he's no, he shows no almsgiving. So later on this beggar then robs him and stomps on the icon of the mother of God. Breaking it in half, actually. Yes, yeah, so... One, I mean, as great of a blasphemy as that is, it is not the only one that we will discuss. There's one that raises my ire even more that ought not, because blaspheming and treating the mother of God in such a way is a pretty terrible thing to do. But yeah, further, I think, is the one that occurs. And, and most later. times, in general, like during these types of stories, they celebrate the joy of spring and summer. But we notice that the author, whoever... He may be, which I think they found a few other manuscripts from him, including the Pearl. Actually, the oldest manuscript of this, if my memory is correct, is the one that has Pearl 
and Beowulf. Yeah. So it's the, that's a, I want to say 14th or 15th century copy. But we see that usually summer and spring are portrayed, but the poet chose to evoke this story within midwinter in Northern England. And... (laughs) Which is miserably cold. Exactly. If and you've ever been. So the rugged terrain and weather, they became major factors in uh, Sir Gawain's spiritual mm-hmm. life, in his spiritual journey, as well as his physical journey to find the Green Knight. So thus we end up at at the castle. Who right. who does the castle belong to? The castle belongs to a guy named Bergelac. Who is, you know Well, Spoiler, he is the Green Knight. Exactly. But obviously Gawain doesn't know that. Yeah. Um, so he's given a fine welcome. Um, the, the Even though he's never heard of Sir Bergelac, he's never heard of this castle before. He even, Everyone there knows him and says, ah, you are the most virtuous and one of the greatest knights. Yeah, he, he even asks. Here. He's like, um, I need you to ask the king if I can come in. And they say, oh. You know, there's no need to ask. And they all, like, I think, bow before him or open the gates. Many people come down. They help him with his... Well, they still ask. He says, well, still, go ask, please. But they help him with his gear. They bring his horse in. They do all these things. So they, they, it's like as if they expect him. Mm -hmm. You know, they know he's coming. So, yeah. Which, if you're paying attention to the beginning of the poem, they are expecting him. Yeah. (laughs) Because Sir Bergelac knows that he is an honorable knight and he will come. But... They're received, interestingly, the lady of the castle, Sir Bergelac's wife, um, Sir Gawain notes that she, at least to his eyes, seems even more beautiful than Queen Guinevere, which is interesting, um, and sets up the later interactions in the poem. But the, how shall I say, the, the narrative proceeds in that the, in Sir Bergelac entertains Sir Gawain, gives him a place to sleep, gives, you know, does provides a feast in his honor, effectively. And then says, why don't you stay with us for a while? You're such a storied knight, you ought to stay with us. And Sir Gawain says, I, I really can't. I have, I have an errand. I have, to find the, um, I have to find the green chapel. And if I don't, I'm going to have voided my knightly honor, and that's not going to be good. And Sir Bergelac says, what? This is when he challenges them, him? No. Or- no, Sir Bergelac says... Oh, well, you're in great luck. The Green Chapel is two miles away yeah, he from says, my castle. He says it's you're... Right, it's literally right here. Yeah. Hang out for a couple of days. Celebrate the feast with us. And on New Year's Day, you can go. And I'll, gi- I'll even give you someone to... I'll, I'll, I'll give you an escort to show you where it is. Yeah, and in, in the book, it's not a fox. Well, right? the fox plays... I don't know if we'll get a chance to touch on the fox. Well, they use the, the fox in the movie as like a spirit guide. Yeah, Someone who, who ends up talking to him at one point in a human voice. It's it's creepy, demonic. Yeah. Um, but so, so what happens? They then set this accord, and that is uh, Sir Bergelac tells Sir Gowan, okay, I'm going to go hunting every day, and yep. whatever I get, whatever I win, I'm going to give to you. And you stay in the castle and take your, take your leisure. Hang out, drink, feast, talk to my wife, talk to the people here, and whatever you win, what if you win anything... You can you give to me. We'll have an exchange of gifts. Yeah, this is what is known right. as the exchanging of gifts. Right, and we'll do this for three days. Right, and that puts them on New Year's Eve. That will end on New Year's Eve. Yeah, the day before he has to he, be at the Green Chapel. Exactly, so which the, just happens to be a few miles away. Curious. <laughs> <laughs> so the first day, Sir Bergelot goes out and he kills a number of deer. 
Yeah, the first I think the first back. animal he brings back is a deer. It's, yeah, he brings in in the in the poem he brings back several. Yeah, but he he brings them back. And for anyone who, if you have children and you're listening to this and they want to read this poem, the discussion on what happens after they kill the deer is fairly, um, shall we say, graphic. Yeah. So if you if your kids have never butchered an animal before that might be kind of an unpleasant thing for them to read. So so he comes back, the Lord, mm-hmm. uh, uh, yeah, the, yeah. yeah, the Lord comes back with with deer, with uh, venison right. for uh, Sir Gawain. Mm-hmm. And in exchange, while, while the Lord is gone, the wife is, this is part of his test. Right. She is not necessarily a temptress in her original, uh, you know, demeanor, right. but... This is all part of the test, and she is trying to tempt Sir Gawain mm-hmm. uh, numerous times, and all she ends up getting is a kiss. Is a kiss, exactly. Interestingly, because she kind of shames him. Yeah, because but he also doesn't want to make her feel, um, right. you know. Well, there, there's a line in there where he's he says, you know, I don't want to um, lose my knightly reputation. Yeah, there, there's a phrase that they use, and I don't remember what it is, but he, he says, you know, I don't want to lose my my reputation, but I also don't want to surrender my virtue. Exactly. <laughs> and he goes, and I would rather lose the former than the latter. Yeah. So, so the first day, so the first day she kind of shames him into giving her a kiss because when she leaves, cause she's cornered him in bed, actually he's sleeping and she sneaks into his chambers yeah. and sits on the edge of the bed and won't let him get up and dress. And he's, he doesn't want to scandalize her. So he doesn't <laughs> exactly. get out of bed, even though he asks her to leave so he can dress. Um, but the when she leaves after they've bantered back and forth for several hours, it seems, um, she kind of says, oh, well, obviously you're not Sir Gawain. And he's like, what makes you say that? And she goes, well, it's ridiculous to me that anyone pretending to be Sir Gawain would let a lady who has been trying to win him as lover leave without giving a kiss. And he goes, oh, well, if you want one, I'll give you one. So just ask. And she goes, yeah. and so he gives her a kiss. And Sir Bergelac comes home, presents the venison. And guess who gets a kiss? Gawain throws his arms around Sir Bergelac's neck and gives him a kiss. Exactly. And at first, he's he doesn't understand. I mean, he probably does. He makes does. all kinds of snide comments. Yeah, exactly. But it's, you know, he praises Gawain's friendship. And so, again, the next day. He goes out again. He goes hunting. And I believe he brings home a boar. Mm-hmm. A the, boar. The that, second day. Yep. He brings home a boar that, and that's actually a really one of my favorite parts in the story is Bergelac killing the boar because that thing the boar kills a lot of his dogs, yeah. it wounds a lot of his men. If you guys know anything about boars, they're they're Going brutal. After them with a sword is a yeah. You, you've got some gall, some some balls if you do that. They usually go for your eyes or your throat because they they're like they're omnivorous. They'll kill you. Yeah, and chair. also they're not the they don't have the best vision, and we have javelinas here, and they don't have the best vision, but they know what to do to take you out. So him, him bringing home a boar is definitely a big feat mm-hmm. getting a deer, you know, it's Still no, it's, it's no easy feat, right. but it's a lot uh, easier than a, a wild boar finding one, right. killing one deer generally don't kill you. No, the they kind of, I mean, they've been known to, to but they generally stand there, you know, well, that, that's a different story. They're easier to track. Right. So he brings home a boar, it, but in the meantime, um, the Lord's wife is still tempting is, Sir Gawain. Has still been trying to seduce Sir Gawain. Yeah. And she goes pretty hard this time. Also, there is many ways to say his name. And I believe in the movie they 
what do they call him? I, I say Gawain, you say Gawain. That's just how I've heard it. Yes. Yeah. That's how I say it. You also say Augustine, and I say Augustine. Augustine. I yeah. say both, but yeah. So yeah. yeah. Sorry, I just noticed um, in the movie. Do you remember what they call him? I don't recall. Gawarn? They say like Gawarn or something very weird. I'm trying really hard to not remember a lot of that movie because so you're it's leaving, so bad. you're leaving that up to me. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, you've seen it three or four times? times four like times? That. Yeah. I'm judging you <laughs> so hard right now. Um, so... The same scene repeats itself in Sir Gawain's room. The yeah. lady tries to seduce him. He resists, but throughout the course of this dialogue, he gives her two kisses. So at the end of that, um, when Sir Bergelac comes home, presents Sir Gawain with the boar, the, <clears throat> pardon, Gawain gives him two kisses. And... Again, Sir Bergelot compliments him and says, well, if you keep on, if you're this successful compared to me, when I go out hunting, you're going to be a very rich man in no, in very short order. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is a hilarious comment, I think. But third day, so, but, but either way, they part his friends. Sir Gowan tries to then say, okay, well, I really need to leave tomorrow because I really have to get to the Green Chapel. I don't want to be late. I cannot break my vow. Um, and Sir Bergelot says, reiterates again, it's right it's it's, it's right down the road close. it's down the road a couple of miles i will give you a guide i'll get you an uber you'll you'll <laughs> i hate that i'm so wouldn't um, be surprised if that was in the movie yeah also quick note uh we lost video for a moment but it's back up so i apologize um but but either way so sir gowan tries to bow out and leave early and uh, sir Bergelac says okay well no 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 i'll square you away i will get you there on time you will not be late yeah. for your meeting, for your tryst, as they call it. And so Gowan says, okay, okay, I'll stay. And Sir Bergelac then says, all right, but also, you're a knight of your word, yes? And he goes, yes. He says, okay, so are you game to finish? Are you down to finish our game? Yeah. I'm going to go hunt tomorrow. Day three. Whatever I bring back is yours. Whatever you acquire while you're here, you're going to give to me, right? Sir Gowan is, says, yeah, for sure, 110%. So the same thing kind of happens, but this time, this is the only time that you have a discussion given to Sir Bergelac's wife dressing herself, and she shows up, interestingly, as a maid. She doesn't wear anything in her hair, um, which is the symbol of, a, um, of someone who is unmarried. So she shows up and tries really, really hard to seduce Sir Gowan, and she almost succeeds, but she gets three kisses from him, if my memory is correct, and insists on giving him another gift and he says yeah. no i can't take anything from you and this gift plays a significant role uh you know symbolically right but the gift is a green girdle right well which first is, she yeah. offers him a ruby ring a yep. ring of red gold with a ruby in it she tries to give this to him and gowan says absolutely not i will not take this and the lady pretends to be or i won't say pretends the lady becomes very offended and says what, why aren't you going to give this to me? Like, I'll give you this, you give me your gauntlet, one of your gloves. And he says, no, I'm not going to do that. I can't take anything from you. And she starts to get upset and says, okay, well, you think that I am worthless or something like that. And he says, no, 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 far from it. I just can't accept one of these gifts. And she says, okay, well, how about I give you something that's of no value? I'll give you my girdle, my belt. And he goes, yeah, I don't know about that. And she goes, well, this has, this doesn't appear to have any monetary value, which it doesn't. No. But it possesses a particular virtue. What is that virtue that it possesses? It'll protect him. He can't be killed. Yeah, he's indefinitely. So, right. which also, this is all part of the test, as as you'll come to find out, you know. 
because he knows he's going to get yeah. his head chopped off. Yeah, and mean so, she's yeah. obviously in on this with her husband, right? Who is the Green Knight, right. but Sir Sir Gawain, Sir Gawain does does not know that yet. Right. So yeah, so, she she gives him the green girdle. So this is his moment of temptation. He goes. Yeah, the biggest moment of temptation. Right. I mean, he he's preserved his. We also don't see any of that in the film. We don't see the multiple days. We just right. see one interaction between. Um, one thoroughly they don't even, I don't, interaction. Yeah, they mention the exchange of gifts. The the Lord leaves, and then you see uh, Sir Gawain in in the room with the lady, and it ends very disgusting. Let's just Sir Gawain doesn't maintain his chastity at right all in in any way. It's a very vulgar scene. It's brief, but it's vulgar, and it, it just kind of you know. It's worthless. Yeah. It has no business being in the film for a number of reasons. Well, besides the fact that it's Hollywood and it's rated R and they had to throw something perverse in there besides the, the brothel. Perverse things yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, day, th- day three, he, he receives the girdle, a uh, few more kisses to the lady. The Lord comes back and I believe he comes back with a fox hide. Yeah. A fox hide. Interestingly, the only animal that's named, I believe uh, the fox's name is, let me see if I can find it. But yeah, if you guys are enjoying this video, make sure to like and subscribe. Yeah, the fox is named Reynard. Reynard. Which is interesting. I don't know why the fox is named. Um, that will be a discussion we can have at some other point with somebody else that might know the answer to that question. Yeah. But And it's actually a pretty cool pursuit scene as well um, because the fox is obviously a very sly animal, a very difficult animal to catch and kill. And the king, and, and not the king, uh, Sir Bergelac finally kills it and brings back the uh, the fox hide and gives it to Sir Gowan and Sir Gowan only gives Sir Bergelac three kisses. And not the girdle. And not the girdle. And the next day, um, Sir Gowan rises early, not having slept very well um, after being feasted well into the night by the by uh, Sir Bergelac. Do you think his lack of sleep is due to the fact that he knows he didn't give, he didn't keep his word? I don't know. Or that he's worried about, you know, getting... <laughs> To the Green Chapel, they don't really well, specify any of that, but the they leave it open for the interpretation. In the poem is that, or the, the commentary in the poem is that he had much to occupy his mind. <laughs> so yeah. it could have been that, but there's also obviously a number of other things, such as a very large sharp axe coming down in the back of his neck here shortly. Yeah, um, and how he's going to resolve that particular situation because he obviously is not the kind of man who, after having his head hacked off, can pick it up and walk away with it. No. Um, so. He doesn't sleep well. He goes. He rises early. Armors goes to confession, um, which we don't see in the movie again. Right. Goes to confession, and then he is given it. With he's given high praise in the farewells um, when he leaves the castle, but he's also given a guide. And at the last minute, the guide when when they get to where the guide is going to leave, he says, "Okay, here in this valley, the, the chapel is down there. You you follow these directions, you'll get to the chapel. But I'm not going down there." Because the knight that lives there is a terrible, heathen, violent man. He will kill anyone that walks past or that comes past to the Green Chapel. And the squire even then says to Sir Gowan, if you don't heed my warning, or if you heed my warning, you can leave here and I will tell no one. I will say that you went and fought or you went and fulfilled your duty. I don't know how it turned out, but he went and fulfilled his duty. I will not say anything to anyone. Yeah, he won't snitch. Yeah. And Sir Gowan effectively rebukes him and says, 
whatever my weird is, whatever my fate is, that's yeah. in God's hands. I will not break this vow. Yeah, and there's a quote in, in the version that I'm reading that you've read numerous times, mm-hmm. and it says, a man must stand up to his fate, whether it bring good or ill. Right. So he, no matter what happens, and like we've said before, it could be a scratch, it could be his uh, beheading, or it could it could be nothing. The, maybe the Green Knight's not even there. But either way, he he understands his promise, and he allows God's will to take him where he needs to go. Right. So, so he goes because he's virtuous, and we right. don't we don't see that in the film at all. Well, in the film, he is the furthest thing from virtuous. Yeah, like he is. It's bad. Yeah, he he fails at all things, but the final task, which we'll get to, but in in the poem, he succeeds in all tasks, but except for one, but fails <laughs> fails in one, which right. which we'll get to. So they're complete opposites. It's you know it's an inversion. The film is an inversion of right. the truth. The so Sir Gowan goes down into the valley. He finds the chapel, which actually ends up looking very much like a dolmen. Um, which, if you don't know what that is, it's kind of like a it's an old Celtic tomb. Yeah. Um, with pillars, with a couple of stone pillars and then a large stone slab as a roof. It's not a cathedral. Right. It's it's not a chap. It's not what you're thinking of as a chapel. Yeah. So this happens. He goes down, sees this place, and he thinks this is where Satan would say that. This is where I like, die. This is where, not even that. It's like, <laughs> he's like, yeah, I'm going to die here. But also, this is a terrible place. Like, this is a demonic place. Yeah. This is evil. And he runs into the green, he runs into the green knight there. And they both affirm their willingness to carry out the, uh, the vow that they made to one another a year hence, or a year prior. And Sir Gowan takes his helmet off. Kneels before the Green Knight, and the Green Knight Put, has another axe. He, he moves his hair. Right, just so like that, the Green Knight. Yeah, so that he can see, you know... Some flesh. Some yep. flesh. But yeah, he... And so the Green Knight squares up to him, takes his axe, and starts to take a swing. But something interesting happens. What is that? Yeah, Sir, Sir Gawain, Gawain, however you... How do you say it? <laughs> Gawain. Gawain, Gawain, Gawain. He, he doesn't necessarily... It's not a full flinch. He doesn't jerk away, but he yeah. kind of, fl- he, he like, the, the way the story and the poem describe it, he kind of like tenses his shoulders up and kind of yeah. like goes to protect himself a little bit. Like, exactly. You know how when you're, when you're boxing, you kind of tighten your shoulders up around your neck to protect yourself a little bit. He, that's kind of what he does. Does the green, I don't recall, does the green knight stop with the swing? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So the Stops first one starts making fun of him. The first one we could say <laughs> Sir Gawain flinches, uh, so to speak. And then the second swing, the green knight misses and I believe his axe Ends up in the ground. He pulls it out. But throughout this entire time, he's talking smack to Sir Gowan. He's yeah. like, oh, yeah, you're just a coward. You're afraid to take a blow. I didn't flinch when you swung at me when exactly. you cut my head off. Yeah. And, and he was getting he, more irritated. <laughs> he cut his head clean off. Yeah. So then the third strike comes and... Sir Gowan takes it. Yeah, he, he takes it. He doesn't flinch. But all that the Green Knight does, not all, because it's very symbolic... Mm-hmm. He leaves a, a small scratch, yeah, a, a small nick on the back of his neck. He, he, it's not even that he misses the strike. It's kind he of goes like down he and stops. Tap, he taps him yeah. a little bit. Like he, he taps him on the side of the neck a little bit. And the reason, the reason for this... Well, um, but before, before we get into the reason, Gowan, when that happens, gets mad. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> he sees the blood dripping into the snow. And he goes, okay, you return to the blow. <laughs> And just because you're weak and you are not good at this. He draws his sword, doesn't yeah, he? He draws his sword, pulls his helmet on, gets his shield, and is like, okay, if you come at me again, I'm going to return the blow. I'm not yeah. going to take it. 
This so, will be a duel. Yeah. <laughs> you might kill me, but I'm going to try to kill you again. Yeah. So the reason <clears throat> the Green Knight... I mean, I'm, I can't speak the exact reason, but as to why he doesn't behead him. I mean, I, I guess the reason he doesn't behead him is because he passed all the tests. Right. You know, he, he kept his chat, uh, he kept, he kept chased. He, he lived up to his word. Well, he, he missed twice, which is interesting because the green knight is trying to seduce, is using his wife to seduce Sir Gowan is what yeah. we're going to find out here in a moment. And the first two times the seduction utterly misses. But the third time, the third time though, it comes closer to succeeding yeah. And it doesn't succeed because Sir Gowan is unchaste. It succeeds because Sir Gowan is afraid to die. Yeah. And he also doesn't want to, uh, for lack of better terms, like embarrass the lady. Mm-hmm. You know, like she's obviously been trying for a few days. Right. You know, and he, he wants to, yeah, he, does, he doesn't want it. Like you said, he, he doesn't mind losing his reputation as a knight, but he doesn't want to embarrass the lady. Right, that's that's part of what he doesn't wish to do. So that's why, and and at this point, after Sir Gowan gets upset and says, "Okay, if you look at me so much as sideways again, we're going to have a fight." Yeah. Um, Sir Bergelac, who is the Green Knight, as we've said before, reveals himself to Sir Gowan. He says, "Ah, I am Sir Bergelac. I am the Lord of the Castle. Who the lady who flirted with you and tried to seduce you is my wife. Mm-hmm. Here's how everything played out." And Gowan is shocked. Yeah, he, <laughs> he didn't expect. But that. he passed the test of seduction. Of the Green Knight. But the one thing that he did not give up, and this is why there was that, the little nick on the back of his neck was because of the girdle. Right. He he doesn't... Because he took the girdle. He took the girdle, did not give it as an exchange of gifts, and also, um, in the moment, didn't didn't take it off or, or do anything or give it to him prior. And in but the, now he offers it back. Exactly. But in the film, what we see is we see him cowering during this whole interaction, having a vision of him becoming king, and um, children, et cetera, et cetera. And we just see that, you know, he he doesn't want to live up to what he's done. And throughout the whole film, there's lots of things that, you know, that point us to him not being a knight, him being more of a coward than a knight. Mm-hmm. So what he does is when the green knight goes for the blow, he says, wait, 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 wait. He freaks out. He freaks out. He runs off, which is part of the vision. But then it comes back to, uh, you know, the actual moment where, the Green Knight is going to take the blow, and he says, "You know, wait a second." Takes off the girdle, puts it in front of him, and, and then the Green Knight kills him. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, he says, "Off with your head." Although I would go so far to say, well, but we'll, it's we'll, also we'll discuss the movie here in a minute. Yeah, it's also open for interpretation because it's hard to tell if he does behead him or if it's just right. a, uh, symbolic, just a joke of him being uh, a coward. You know. So, so what Sir Gowan says after the other night after Sir Bergelac has explained what's happened. He, okay, where does it start? The other, the other stern knight in a study then stood a long while. In such grief and disgust he had a grew in his heart. All the blood from his breast and his blush mingled, and he shrank into himself with shame at that speech. The first words on that field that he found then to say were, Cursed be ye, coveting and cowardice also, in you is vileness and vice that virtue destroyeth. He took then the treacherous thing, and untying the knot, fiercely flung he the belt at the feet of the knight. See there the falsifier, and foul be its fate. Through care for thy blow, cowardice brought me to consent to coveting, my true kind to forsake, which is freehand and faithful word that are fitting to knights. So, interestingly, he confesses 
to Bergelak after he's confessed to a priest because that's his penance, right? I have done wrong to you. And by that, I have destroyed the virtue of my knighthood, which is a big problem. But have you any thoughts on that, Ian? Okay, so <clears throat> at that point, Sir Bergelac, they, they have another conversation, and Bergelac insists on telling um, Sir Gowan, you know, everything is forgiven. Your penance has been paid. You don't need to apologize to me. And he then reveals that the entire purpose behind this game has been to try to kill Queen Guinevere. Yeah. <laughs> Which is crazy. So what you have to do is go back to the beginning of the poem and realize that in the aftermath of Sir Bergelac picking up his head and saying, okay, so meet me at the Green Chapel in a year and a couple of days, Guinevere is kind of put off by this. She's a bit disconcerted, to use my favorite word. And King Arthur says to her, well, you know, we, we got to have our fun. We got to have, now we can celebrate the feast. And he kind of blows it off. But what Sir Bergelac tells Gowan is, oh yeah, by the way, this change that you see, because obviously I'm not a giant green man with a huge Danish axe. Like, that's not what I actually am. I am Sir Bergelac, the guy that you met at the castle. The knight that you met at the castle, the other, you know, a few days ago. Do they ever talk about how he becomes the green knight? Morgan Le Fay does it to him. Yeah. Because she wants that whole event to cause Guinevere to die. Mm -hmm. to, to die of fright because she hates her so much. So she, in a way she has cursed? Well, she hasn't cursed him. She just allowed him to change. She allowed Sir Bergelac to change into that form to kind of do this. And he goes, well, you know, she's Sir uh, Morgan Le Fay is a respected member of my court. You will have seen her as kind of the, the, this old lady that is with my queen, yeah. that is with my wife. And like you mentioned earlier, uh, King Arthur is her half-brother. Right. But in a lot of stories, in Arthurian legends, she was an apprentice under Merlin. Right. Well, she's kind of... She's always this this strange character that sometimes is good. Because, you know, at the end of the some of the Arthurian legends, she is one of the ladies who comes to take Arthur to Avalon. Hmm. But at other points, she's definitely not his friend. <laughs> you know, she's trying to cause all of these problems... Such um, as kill his wife. Such as kill his wife on multiple occasions um, because she really doesn't like Guinevere for some reason. Um, but that is revealed and uh, Sir Bergelac begs Gowan to come back to the castle. He says, you're highly respected. My people love you and I love you. You, you are a good knight. You are a virtuous knight. I would like you to come back and stay with us. And Gowan refuses, and after many adventures, he goes, you know, he is also told by Sir Bergelac, he's not going, you know, Bergelac's not going to accept the girdle back. He goes, no, no, it was given to you, you keep it. So Gowan keeps it as a mark of his shame. Yeah, he wears it on his arm as he enters back into mm -hmm. the kingdom. Well, he actually wears it as a baldric, so it's like a sash across his chest. Yeah. And he brings it back. There to might be different interpretations, right. but either way, he yeah. wears it as a mark of shame, right. you know. He's he, not proud. He, he brings it back to Camelot, and he tells them, King Arthur and the other knights, here's what happened. And he gives this speech about how he's shamed and he's no longer a virtuous knight. And interestingly, all of the knights, they kind of laugh at him a little bit because he's taking it too seriously. And they, what they end up doing is all of the lords and all of the knights and ladies of Camelot wear a green sash or a green girdle to indicate that that is the, or to, to pay honor to Sir Gowan, which is pretty interesting. But... Thoughts, comments, concerns, snarky remarks, and then we'll talk about the movie and how the movie is actual cultural appropriation in the wrong way. Um, <laughs> well, I, I just wanted to say once again, uh, thank you for everybody who's watching, subscribing, 
Uh, we now have a Patreon, which I'll put in the description. And still dealing with, like I've said, minor, minor technical issues. So some of the video uh, was not there during this, but it'll be available on Spotify. I think I've fixed the issue. It just comes down to gear, learning new gear, and kind of figuring out how everything flows together. Hopefully within the next few episodes, we'll have that figured out. But make sure you like, subscribe, share it. And for Patreon members, there's three different tiers. They all get you exclusive access, some of them more so than others. And also, if you become a VIP Patreon member, you get um, every issue of the magazine, exclusive content, live Q&As. We've been discussing maybe doing some sort of um, you know, special stuff mm-hmm. for per Patreon, you know, talking about your patron saint, doing maybe like a one-on-one video with you, having you on, on the videos, stuff like that. So um, Nathan has some other ideas too in regards to like artistic stuff. And yeah, we're, we have a lot of stuff planned. I have a few interviews coming up. Uh, Father John Valdez, Death to the World. We are speaking with Richard Rowland, which is hopefully going to happen I'm interviewing um, an ultra runner who is a very Why devout. Why would you have an ultra runner on here? He's a very runners are insane. Well, exactly <laughs> by definition. Yeah, he's a very devout Christian. He's not orthodox, but I love how much he puts Christ at the center of his life, and he's definitely a warrior for Christ. So that's something we're going to talk about. We're going to have him on. I'm doing some stuff with David Patrick Harry, and then we're going to do some stuff with David Patrick Harry. There's a few other guests that I can't. <laughs> quite mentioned yet as I don't have a date or a definite answer, but those are in the works. So yeah, lots of things happening and yeah, make sure to check out the website, website, orthodoxlogos.com. Yeah. Just do a little, little house housekeeping to get it out of the way. Ian's got some cool stuff on there. Um, the notebook, I'll, I'll just show you real quick. The notebook that I'm using to keep my notes for the podcast and various other writing projects is right here. Um, it's, Awesome. And for anyone who doesn't know, uh, or well, most of you don't know, I presume, because I don't make it a habit of putting my uh, very personal foibles on the internet, but I usually, if I'm writing with a pen, I use a fountain pen because it's easier on my hands. I've broken my dominant hand a number of times because I'm a I'm an idiot, and uh, ballpoint pens hurt a lot to use. But the problem with fountain pens is they tend to if you've got lower quality paper, they bleed through, the ink bleeds through, and that's kind of frustrating. This paper, I've filled it up with all kinds of cursive. It does not bleed through at all. So here's the front, there's the back. No bleed through at all. Very thin paper. Yeah, it's quality it's awesome. paper. So I'm going to add a few more different designs for the notebook. I didn't know that they weren't lined, but I'll make an option for lined, or I guess you would consider that like a dotted. It's almost like a graph kind yeah. of thing, but I actually like that a It lot. gives you an outline, but it's not, uh, you know... It's, it's an awesome notebook, guys. If you write with a fountain pen or just like high-quality notebooks, this is fantastic. Yeah. And also, um, just picked up labels for the beard oil. I've been minimizing what's on the website. I really want to focus on the YouTube podcast and have a few items, but I've, I've noticed that, and, and this is no, no blow at people that are doing it, but I've, I've noticed a lot of like orthodox gear and apparel coming out recently. And of course I was inspired <laughs> by people who, who were doing these things, but you know, like father John Valdez, death to the world, those are like the OGs and it really spoke to me, but it seems like it's becoming a fad 
And I don't mean that in necessarily a negative way because, you know, we're glorifying God. It's but become commonplace. Exactly. And I kind of want to step away from that and I want to have things that, you know, are more edifying. So yeah, check out the website. There's a lot on there, a lot that won't be on there. So this is your chance to get the things that will no longer be on there. But yeah, in, in regards to the rest of the podcast, I just wanted to get the housekeeping out of the way. Some of the things that I noticed is that uh, Sir Gawain becomes, so to speak, the prey in, in the movie. You know, he, he doesn't, he's not, he's not virtuous as a knight, you know? Well, so, so we're going to give a brief synopsis of the film first and then kind of do a compare and contrast? Yeah, we can. I mean, I know we kind of touched on it throughout, if, but yeah. If you want to give a brief synopsis, you would, like, I am not a film guy, so I... Like, I, I don't disagree with Ian. The film was shot well. Yeah. But the story was garbage. I mean, of course it was shot well. It was probably a $5 million budget with the most insane cameras and lighting. Right. And, you know, as far as an artistic <laughs> standpoint goes, it was beautifully filmed cinematically. The angles, the you know depth of field, everything they used was, was beautiful. But as a Christian... <laughs> um, not so bueno. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's a weird balance. It's a weird duality, if you will, where I love I loved the movie. I hated the movie, if that makes any sense. So um a brief synopsis. I don't know, I guess we can kind of both we can both touch on it. Just everything about the movie is a complete inversion of the story. Can I start with an overall critique real fast? And once I've said this, this will Yeah, and also year. um <clears throat> let's see where let's see where we're at. We're at an hour and eight. Maybe we could make the rest of this. No, we'll just, we'll, this, this will be available for everybody. We're going to start doing, you know, little like part twos or special videos for Patreon. Not that it's behind like a paywall necessarily, but it does help us with continuing the website and gear and everything else. But for this one, we'll just go ahead and right. we'll just keep going with it. Yeah. Okay. So, because I know we're going to touch on St. Winifred. That's my okay. So I won't say that this is the only critique I have because the Saint Winifred one was like, <laughs> I, I have a I, I can fall into a towering rage on yeah. occasion, and I was very upset when that. I mean, came not around. not to out you, but yeah, uh, your prayer rope was in hand. Let's, <laughs> yeah, let's leave happy. it there. You, I wasn't, you were not I wasn't happy. You were not happy. Upset. And I thought I thought the scene in there wasn't a bad scene. But it was also completely irrelevant and also very blasphemous. It's like it was a bad scene. That's where, <laughs> well, that's where I have a hard time. Like I loved the way it was filmed. I loved kind of the message of it, but also in regards to the legend, it's completely, completely out of place. You know, it's also another way that we see them replacing the masculine hero with right. you know with like a feminine goddess archetype, and when right. he gives back the head that he finds. Of Saint of Saint Winifred, which right, but you know, we'll get there. In a okay, minute. okay, okay. So my overall critique proceeds thusly, and it's similar to, I want to say it was Jonathan Pajot, but I don't remember. It might have been someone else. Um, he basically was like, "Yeah, no," <laughs> but I hate it. So, so, so one of my overall critiques of movies that touch on the ancient world or the medieval world is they're always under the impression that Rome is partially in ruins <laughs> or that Athens is partially in ruins. And as much as I hate the movie 300, I will give credit to them for this. That movie does not take place in a Sparta that is falling to ruin like a lot of other movies do. Yeah. Right. It takes place in a Sparta that 
wall is not true to what Sparta probably looked like is actually a place where people live. Have you right? told people your favorite movie, Troy? We've talked about this before. <laughs> I hate that movie so much. <laughs> um, which is one of my friend. We'll probably yeah. end up doing so. I think we should end up doing something on that. You insist on torment. If if you guys enjoy this type of content where it's us, you know, either watching a movie and then comparing it to the book, um, you know, that's kind of the direction we're going with things as, as well as the lives of the saints. Let us know if you want us to do uh, Troy or or anything. Else. Bring up some things that will make him do this. I If you can see if, what he's if, doing. If this happens, I will need to find a very large vessel of some kind and fill it with some sort of horrible booze that makes me want to die every time I take a drink <laughs> of it just so I can have some physical suffering to match my emotional suffering. Um, that but being but said, Brad Pitt... Brad Pitt was a good Achilles, but Achilles is not the hero of the Iliad. Exactly. Okay, sorry. I know. <laughs> Getting off topic. But I, I hate this this notion of the ancient world or the medieval world being dark, kind of ruined, very nasty places, right? Yeah. As, as we touched on when we started the, the, the first excerpt I read from Sir Gowan, right? It is a beautiful place with the nicest things that anyone can have, right? It's beautiful. It's yeah, the, full spl- of the, the splendor of castle yeah. life, gorgeous festivities, feasts, hunts, right. and obviously warfare, but the way it's portrayed is beautiful. Right. It, you know? It's not portrayed as drab, right? And in many ways, I've actually got to give credit to the guy that made the film, Sir Gowan, because he did put in film the most philosophically accurate aesthetic that portrays the dark ages quote unquote which is not a thing if anyone uses that phrase they're wrong and yeah, they what don't it, know anything about history. what is that book that i that i got because you told me to get it um barbarians uh, to barbarians angels, to angels. Yeah, yeah and that's a book that dr peter wells yeah, fantastic book exactly but it touches on stuff like that you know that also those terrible middle ages by regine pernod i think i'm saying her yeah. correctly her book is phenomenal but there's this there's this notion that the dark ages were just horrible well that the dark ages were a thing they're not a thing exactly (laughs) yeah um the but but the whole notion that the medieval world is just dark and dreary and that whenever you're in a castle it's so dark that you can't hardly see your hand in front of your face and that there's a couple of greasy looking torches putting out a little bit of light and that everyone's pale and sickly looking and like one of the most irritating things is king arthur sitting there messing with his tooth and he's like Oh, my tooth hurts. And I'm like, what the heck is this garbage? Yeah. You know? Go uh, see a dentist, dude. Well, it's it's not even that. It's just like the, going out of... The, the filmmaker went out of his way to make the medieval period look... That was a really bad awful. joke. I'm not sure if they had dentists back then. I mean... Healers. They probably had healers or something. We won't talk about this yeah. right now. <laughs> but yeah, I, Their I, dentist I, would just pull it out. Like most of ours do? Yeah. I mean, what do you think a root canal is? Um, but the... Yeah, this notion that the world is just dreary and nasty is so screwed up, and I hate it so much. Um, but that's that's my biggest critique. That's my biggest overall thematic critique: is the world is dark and loathsome. Yeah, and, and I hated I hated that exactly. And I think that was maybe like um, from an artistic perspective, that was the color grading that they chose to use, which gave it that look in the film, because. As I mentioned before, we see that most times in general, these these themes and these movies are filmed in summer or spring. But he, the book is midwinter in northern England, and it's not necessarily ugly. It's you know there's like but a there's not, a spirit to it. 
But it's not dark either. It's not supposed to be dark. Exactly, exactly. And I'm not sure if maybe that was just the color grading in the movie Mm -hmm. or if that was completely intentional, but even like the Christian scenes in the movie that that were supposed to be Christian, like when they show uh, the pentangle or the pentagram, you know, it was it was very dark. There wasn't like a light to it. It didn't show like, oh, this this represents something virtuous. It was like this is another bad thing. Just like Everything the I, the icon of the mother of God when it gets smashed, or that's the only time they show it. And it's a way of them kind of saying, you know, you know well, they, what they show it one more time prior to that, but it's a brief flash. Yeah, and I don't even remember that. It's 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 cool. But continue. Sorry, continue with your synopsis of the movie. I'm sorry. No, yeah, I I think. I think we should uh, touch on, on Winifred and, and that scene. Because okay. if, if anybody has listened to one of our previous episodes, we talked about St. Winifred, who is a 7th century Welsh martyr. Right. Well, she's martyr slash saint. She's one of those yeah. saints who was martyred and then God resurrect, brought her back to life. Yeah, so and she became a very famous nun. She was, martyred, she was martyred due to the fact that she wanted to remain chaste. And the person, the, the knight... A was either prince. A, pr- was a, prince. a prince that was trying to court her, wasn't having it, cut off her head. Where her head fell, a miraculous spring formed, and right. it is still there to this day. You With can red tinged water. Yes, you can you can visit it. And in the movie, what they do is he's traveling to the to the Green Chapel. He stumbles upon a house. I believe he he lays down in the bed, and and a woman comes in saying, you know. Who are you? Why are you right. here? And he's like, Who are you? And and she's fully human at this time. You know, she's she's not a skeleton or anything. And she asks for his help to go retrieve her head from a pond that is outside. And it's a swamp, not even a pond. Yeah, a, a, swamp. a swamp. And the one thing that that's stuck out to me about this scene is that I think he even asks, What do I get in return? He's not he's not virtuous at all. He's right. if I do this, what he's do I get? Pro quo. Exactly. What do I get out of this? And that is not at all and you know. She also tells this tells her story too. Yeah. And it's not a good version of the story. Exactly. She says, Oh yeah, you know, I was my name is Winifred. I uh you know, so and so showed up and wanted to uh, marry me and I turned him down and he cut my head off and threw it in the pond and I've not been able to get it out of the pond ever since, so I need your help to get it out of the pond. And it's like first off, that's just not that hagiography, which is a big problem. That kind of stuff really rubs me the wrong way, for lack of a better phrase. Yeah, I'm wondering, the person who, who made this movie, I'm wondering what translation they read. Or maybe they read one and they're like, you know what, let's just let's take this out. Yeah, that's what I think happened. This is a, this is a good example of cultural... It's a bastardization of... Exactly, and that's... Which we'll talk about after a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, can, so with him meeting... Winifred, and they don't even say Saint Winifred. They don't even give her the notoriety that she deserves. That God has bestowed on her as being a martyr and a saint. Right. It's just my head is in this pond. I need you to get it. And he says, "Well, what do I get?" So then he proceeds to dive down. Uh, there's a very dark, dramatic scene where he ends up finding her head, bringing it back into the home, and I believe she is no longer there. Well, he finds a skeleton. Yeah. In the bed that he had laid in, and he puts the head back, right. which is very symbolic as well, too. Well, it's... It, in, it, in, in not in a good way. It, it plays into some later later things that occur. But one, one of the other problems that occurs as well, and this is fairly early on in the film, is you see that 
Morgan Le Fay slash Morgaz. Like, they're both kind of the same character, which is sketchy. Yeah. Um, they... She's the old... She's also in the movie. She's not only uh, Sir Gawain's mother, right. but she's also the Green Knight's, like, wife's apprentice or... Not even apprentice. She's, like, her... her uh, she's... One of her ladies in waiting, but she also kind of seems to be this very blind, wretched old woman. This pagan character, which which yeah. she is in the film. Yeah, the, the Green Knight is not someone who has been told by Morgan, "Okay, well, go and do this thing to try to get Guinevere to die." It's it's a ritual. He's a golem. Yeah, I mean, he's a thing that was kind of put together and summoned to life, which is sketchy. And there's also touching back on an earlier thing. Arthur and Guinevere in this film are shown to be this really old kind of pathetic childless couple, which they are childless. Yeah. In in every legend, they're childless. However, they're not old and pathetic. Like that first, yeah, that first line, couple of lines that we read at the beginning of the podcast, right? They're both young. Arthur is in the peak of his strength and Guinevere is the most beautiful woman anyone's ever seen. Right? Yeah. And they're full of life and joy. But all of the life and joy is out of is not in this film. And Arthur's this sickly old man who kind of seems to want Gowan, who actually is not a knight in this movie. Yeah, he can't but he becomes knighted. Kind of. And it's weird. Yeah, he can't even knight him because he's so weak. Right. Yeah, Arthur is this And I know you loved well yeah, I know you loved what uh Sir Gawain ended up becoming. Yeah, no. Um but the yeah, Arthur is this impotent old man, and Guinevere is this kind of pathetic, whiny old woman. It, it's very, very strange. Yeah. And all of the knights are kind of, shall we say, gelded. Yeah. Um, none of them, they're all ready to, when, when the Green Knight shows up, they're all ready to... Leave. To fight, but they also seem, none of them seem to actually be willing to do so. They're all kind of hiding in the shadows with their hands on their swords. They, like they're going to strike from the shadows. They act as if they want to fight because of their notoriety as knights. Well, I wouldn't even say that. They almost look like they want to fight to get out. Yeah. Like the, the idea that they're going to strike from the shadows in a very unchivalrous fashion seems to be what's being shown there. But that occurs um, when Gowan is being outfitted. He has this tiny pentagram on the boss of his shield. And then he has, you know, it's, it's and nothing is made of it. It's just kind of like, oh, well, that's there. And like Ian said, it's in concert with this very pagan-looking priest or priestess ritual. Yeah. Is when you see it. And then There's also, no separation within right. the two. Right. Showing one's good or bad. It's almost like they're the same. They're the same thing. And then there's on the back of the shield, there's an icon of the Mother of God and interestingly, the sh- with one other, ex- with only one exception, the shield is always shown face up on the ground, which mm-hmm. is symbolically problematic <laughs> um, for a number of reasons. But what what happens when when Gawain leaves? Like he he leaves Camelot. He's kind of forced to do it, which is also irksome. Um, he's he's forced to do it, and yeah, it's it's like I said, he becomes the prey. Right. He's he's not taking this it's not a task I know we said this word a lot of virtue. He's like, right. Oh, I guess I guess I better get this over with, I better go do this. And it's right. not like, you know, a mission that he he seems to care too much about. Right. And he, he gets 
like 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 we said as well, he's not a knight, which is a problem because he is he is a knight. He's supposed to be a knight, and when he is <clears throat> accosted by this thief or this this beggar who eventually robs him with a couple a couple of other fellows, like he seems to actually be the leader of a gang of uh, bandits. When he's robbed, the the bandits like, oh, are you a knight? And he goes, no, no, I'm not a knight. And he behaves in a very cowardly fashion he insists that he's not a knight and i i don't even really understand what happened after that like uh during the encounter yeah where he i think he's asking for directions that part and the beggar gives him directions he chooses to just ride away like thank you and the beggar says is my is my advice worth nothing and he says it over and over and over i'm not sure if he gives him anything i think he might give him a, a coin but eventually that's when, as he continues traveling, he is in the woods and he is ambushed by other beggars and other pagans. They end up taking the axe. I think they take the axe, I believe. Right. His horse, stomp on the mother of God. And then there's this long pan. It's like a 360 degree pan, which is brilliant as far as cinematics go. But it shows like this time period of winter turning into spring, which is another thing that, that we that we see in the film, it's very symbolic, um, like this solstice, this this change, you know, and that's where the Green Knight, and that's where we see that they try to portray him as like this deity, this nature god, you know. Right. So it's there's there's all this weird stuff happening. It's it's something you definitely have to. I mean, Nathan would probably say don't watch it, but if if you want to see the differences, <laughs> it's worth watching multiple times to see to see all the different symbolism. And the bastardization of the Christian faith, right. of everything that's very blasphemous. But yeah, there's also we we spoke on this earlier that during his travels he encounters numerous beasts, and he he doesn't he back down. Da- he doesn't back down from them. And in in the movie, there's a scene where there's like naked nephilim or, or giants, or whatever they're trying to portray. And I know sometimes giants can be symbolic of um, you know weather changes in weather. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera, but he flinches. There's one point where the giant reaches for him and he gets scared and he flinches. He's not even, you know, he he doesn't fight ever. Yeah, at all. He I don't think there's fights. there's not a single fight in there, is there? No, and that's that's he gets beat up by beggars. Yes, his icon gets stomped on. The giant comes after him, a naked giant with breasts, right. and he flinches. He doesn't want to hold up his end of the deal with the Green Knight. He flinches. He has a vision of running away. Um, and that's that's maybe what we ought to talk about because at first I didn't know so, if it was a vision or if I was like okay so he we we, we can talk about Sir yeah. Bajalak's castle for a moment because like Gowan shows up and is given a place to rest and then the lady of the castle I, I I don't even know how to describe it like she doesn't even quite seduce him she just kind of shows up and abuses him yeah. And then leaves. And that's the other thing as well. The, the green girdle that's given to him is given to him by Morgan, not the queen's wife. Or not, not the king's wife. No, yeah. In, in, in the movie, it's given to him by his mother. Right. Not exactly. You don't even see the girdle being given to him in the proper manner from right. the Lord's wife. It's, it's just bizarre. So, so that happens. Gowan leaves. And then Sir Bergelac sees him and says, "Okay, well, next time I see, next time you try to come back this way, I'm not going to be here." Sayonara, mm-hmm. which is, I, I don't even understand what they were trying to do with that. I mean, I, I understand sometimes in Hollywood, 
certain movies like I know you're not a huge fan of the Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy. I like the movies. I'm not. But as, what I'm saying yeah. is sometimes they, as long as those movies are, they had to leave out a lot of things, oh, yeah. but they at least tried to keep within the story. In this one, it's not like they didn't have time. They just completely changed things. Right. They, they just bastardized the entire thing. Um, so, so he eventually shows up to see the Green Knight and he has this weird interaction with the fox, with Reynard, who says to him something to the effect of, if you go to this chapel, you're going to die. So he kind of yeah. takes the place of the, of the squire that's showing him Ex- where to go. Exactly. And the, but they use it in this weird pagan form of like a spirit guide, like right. the fox is his spirit animal or something weird. Right. And so he shows up and the green knight is, as Ian was saying, very much an incarnation of the green man. Yeah. Like that's, that's what he is. He's just sitting there in the chapel. He wakes up and doesn't know when it is. He goes, oh, is it Christmas? And it's like, why else would Gowan be there? Of yeah. course it's Christmas. Yeah, and you see in the film that um, there's or like New a... New Year's, actually, not Christmas, but... Yeah, there's a certain scene where the Green Knight is walking down when it's time uh, for, you know, the blows to not to be exchanged, but when it's time for him to, return. him to return the blow, and you see there's no snow around. Right. The spring is flowing, and right. it's like it's this... It's not wintertime. Yeah, it's, they're, they're definitely trying to push some sort of, like weird neo-pagan garbage yeah like oh it's springtime and like i don't know springtime in the heart of the woods where no people are where the gods where the old gods live exactly um but the problem then occurs that the knight goes the green knight goes to return the blow uh and behead sir gowan and gowan behaves in a craven manner there is no oh he flinches his shoulders a little bit because you know he can't pick his head up and put it back on he He, runs away freaks out and event in the green knight kind of is put off by it but he doesn't really say anything there's none of the mockery that occurs in in the in the text and then sir gowan has this vision where he gets up and runs away and this is after the second blow is about to be struck or it has been attempted he gets up and runs away and i i don't know what to do with that vision other than to say it solidifies that the Sir Gowan portrayed in the film is a bloody coward. But also the vision becomes true in a sense at the end because he ends up becoming uh, the the king. Right, because Arthur knights him and he's so weak and feeble that he can barely do it. Yeah. Gowan becomes king for some reason. So in the film, he gets knighted. Right. In the book... The he's poem, already he's already a knight. Right. And that's where they get this whole thing wrong. It's like... One it, of the many places yeah. they get the whole thing But it's wrong. like they're trying to portray him in this in this way to where eventually he leads up to him being virtuous. But he's not virtuous even as the king. Yes. Yeah. His own... He is never in battle. Because... His own son, who... The, the son that's supposed to follow him is the spawn of a prostitute. Yeah. Who he... Who he leaves... So in, that in he the, can marry Saint Winifred. Yeah, in the beginning, of, so she can seduce him. Rather, yeah, in the is, beginning, he he seems to love this prostitute, sp- wants to spend her time with her, avoid mass right. with her, and then at the end, she gives birth, and he throws some coin on her bed. Yeah, he, he buys her, his son from yeah. her effectively, and then Saint Winifred shows up, and this is the most blasphemous portion. He marries her, and they have a daughter together, which is not okay. Um, but also his yeah, son defeat, dies. It de- it's like it def- defeats the story of St. Winifred. St. Winifred's story is about chastity. 
in yeah. many ways. That's not the only thing it's about, but that's one it of the It is like the most ways. virtuous Christian... Right. She would rather die than not be a nun. Yeah. Um, but in this story... <clears throat> she post... She performs a... Po- uh, God forgive me for saying this. She performs a post-mortem seduction of a random, virtuous wretch of a man. Yeah. And then... Because of what he does, she is restored to life. Which Not I, because of God's mercy. She's restored to life, and she comes and seduces him. That's what I didn't... That's the part that I couldn't understand, is that in the film, she's dead, but then she becomes reincarnated. Well, no, she's not reincarnated. She's resurrected. She's resurrected to marry him. Right, which is a complete and utter inversion of the story. And it's not... I'm not going to be as charitable as Ian. That filmmaker knew exactly what he was doing. You don't get to butcher a story about a saint that badly yeah. and not be ignorant of what's going on. Yeah. Because he knew Saint he knew Saint Winifred. I don't even think they refer to his Saint at to her as Saint no. at all. No, I mean yeah. So so yeah, in in the end we see him becoming king with I don't even want to say it, with Winifred on on his left. You know, I'm not gonna yeah. With Winifred on his left, he has a, a bastard son. Who dies in a battle of some kind. Yes, who dies in a battle. He has a daughter with Winifred. And at, at the very end, should we... Yeah, it, it, at the very end, the castle is besieged by somebody. No one is... Nothing is specified. And Gowan takes the green girdle off, which he's left on the entire time. And his head falls off, indicating that what happens... After this vision is over, um, was one of the kind of outcomes. It's hard to say. Yeah. But what that seems to indicate is that the Green Knight cut his head off, but because he's invulnerable um, with that girdle on, he's all right. So when he takes it off, the wound takes effect. Yeah, he pulls it out of his. He like looks down and he's pulling it out of his side. Right, and then his head. Falls as soon off. as he pulls it out all the way, his head falls off. Um, I think the crown, kind of. Right. Rolls away, and then we see at the very, very end, past the credits, that their daughter picks up the crown, puts it on, and this is just the spirit of the age when we're seeing, you know, like this this masculine hero archetype, this legendary knight, mm-hmm. this, these these mythical stories, you know. They're these, just being spat upon. They're being spat upon, and it's, we're turning them into like, you know— women are going to be what what is it uh it's a kind of feminist nihilism yeah because one of one of the comments the the future is feminine is like what they were trying to say that's the saying it's like the future is feminine it's like because that's that's one of the things that the green or that gowan says to the green knight and it's one of the only times the green knight speaks yeah at the end on the final blow he says is this really all there is gowan says that and the green knight kind of looks at him and he goes uh what does he say he says Ought there be more? Yeah, he says. What else ought there be? Yeah, or ought there be more? Something and that, that and effect. that's it. And then he kills. And then he kills Gowan. Yeah, and it's. Like, but I he does. But they it, don't. They don't show him killing him. No, but he's out, he obviously dies. The yeah. First credit scene indicates that that's what happens. But it's such a nihilistic film in opposition to what the story of Gowan actually is about. And I'm not going to say that this is all Gowan's about. You know, Sir Gowan's about because. There is far more to it than addressing one's shame and doing penance for one's sin, right? Yeah. But that's a big part of this story, is being a virtuous man, and when you stumble and fall, 
you repent you, and you confess. You repent and you pick up and you keep on going, right? That's a big part of this story. You don't do what we see in the movie. Right. And so... Which we had... To, yeah, we had to look at each other at that scene. I was... And I was like, there, is that what I think it is? And it was. Yeah, it, it's just bad. Um, but this brings us to the notion of cultural appropriation. We've got a couple more minutes, right? Oh, yeah, we, we're good. Okay. So... There's a fellow by the name of Dr. Um, Gwillem Morris Baird, or Baird Morris Morris Baird. I think I think it's. Let me let me look it up. Look his name up real fast. I, I want to make sure I get this right. Um. Uh, yeah, Gwillem Morris Baird. He's a uh, he's a Welsh scholar that studies Celtic mythology. And if you guys are interested, these um, this is. Let's see if I can get that to focus. Tolkien's translation of Gowan and the Green Knight. That also has Pearl in it. It has a couple of lectures on other topics as well. And I believe that has Sir Orpheo. And then this is another one. This is uh, Medieval Romances from Modern Library. By Roger and Laura Loomis. And they are both fantastic scholars. I cannot recommend them enough. I've read a lot of their work and they're really good. I don't know. I don't know what has happened to... The autofocus. My autofocus on my camera. Yeah, I'm gonna figure some things out. But yeah, right. I can put the links to the de- uh, books in the description, or if or if I forget to, you can send us a message. And if if you find a place where the medieval romance is, um, is still in print, that would be awesome because I found this at a random bookstore that was going out of sale. Uh, out of uh, oh, you got business? this at Starlight? Yes, for two fifty. Mm. I was very pleased to find it. Um. I made a lot of good purchases there. Yeah, it's got the story of Percival. Right. Which will do. Percival's a good story. Yeah. But which maybe we'll do with Richard Rowland if if that ends up happening. You know, I'm sure that'll be a good topic of conversation. He's already done that with uh, Jonathan Pedro. Yeah. But either way, this guy, this fellow, Dr. Willem um, uh, Morris Baird, in, his, in the first episode of his podcast, which is called Celtic Source, which I highly recommend. It's fantastic. Um, he's a really good scholar. He talks about the idea of cultural appropriation. And I'll not lie. When I first heard that that's what he was going to talk about in that podcast, I was really put off. Yeah, because usually we hear cultural appropriation in the sense of like, and I'm not saying I'm not going to necessarily voice my opinion on it, but it's like like blackface or, or wearing or dreadlocks. Exactly, you know, like ridiculous petty things. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know if blackface is petty. Well, no, a lot of it. A lot of it is petty, though. Yeah. Uh, you know, the whole notion of dreadlocks or of uh, you know, can I can I like you have to be Jamaican to have dreadlocks? Can, can a lady from Seattle sell tacos? Like that kind of stuff is yeah. dumb. So that's usually how we hear cultural oppression right. talked about, especially uh, you know people like the leftist agenda is very uh, you know politically correct and oh, this is cultural appropriation, Taco Tuesday. Like, how dare you have a Taco Tuesday, you know? Right. But the way that, that he speaks of cultural appropriation is is mm-hmm. has a little bit of a deeper meaning. Be- because I'd heard a couple of his lectures before, I was like, okay, I'll roll the dice, I'll give this guy a chance. And I want to see what he's got to say. I might hate this. I really hope I don't because I like the little bit of his work that I've heard. Whatever. So I listened to it, and he gives the example of people who retell specifically Celtic mythology badly. In his just in his example is that a British or not British, that an Englishman tells, say, a Welsh myth 
or makes up a Welsh myth and just butchers it. Right? Sounds sounds familiar. Well, and he's and his observation is: look, you've got to realize that to the Welsh, British or English, shall we say, oppression is a very real thing, and it was until fairly recently. And he goes, you know, so when a Brit shows up and say buggers up the story of King Arthur, it's like seriously, this is happening again. But his definition that he gives, not to not to get too lost in the weeds, is cultural appropriation is the intentional or ignorant misappropriation or misuse of culture. So what he would say is not that that he would not say that cultural appropriation is a Englishman retelling King Arthur like Thomas Mallory. But it's re- retelling it in badly. Retelling it incorrectly. Yeah. Generally with because of a lack of knowledge or a lack of care for the source material. Right. So, for example, an example of cultural appropriation in the United States would be someone retelling the story of Quanah Parker, who is the last great war chief of the Comanches, the Panatica tribe of the Comanches, right? Cultural appropriation would be... Doing a disservice to the legend well, would, of someone. Would, would be someone retelling Quanah's story and lying about him, right? Not to say that that lie is necessarily bad. That lie could be something like, oh, he was really virtuous and was a, um, you know, didn't oppress black men or something like that, or was anti-slavery. That would be cultural appropriation because that's not true. And that's known to be not true. Yeah. You know, something like that would be cultural appropriation. And so I think that the this story of th- this modern film adaptation of Gowan and the Green Knight is the definition of cultural appropriation. The story is well known. There are multiple variations of it, but the director did a really, really bad job. Well, the first thing that we see is Sir Gawain is Indian. Well, I don't even I don't even care about that. One of the examples that's been brought up with regard to And that, I don't mean that in a bad way, right. I'm just saying like they Right, he's East Indian. They had to be woke. Right. They had to be woke like we need to make them ethnically diverse. First thing first and foremost, we can't have a white a white male who plays, you know, the hero, the hero, even though that is, even though they chose an Indo-European male, which is more or less the same thing. Yeah. But the, it's like, I don't even care so much about that. You can cast whoever you want, as long as they're a good fit. As long as the story holds true to the truth of the story. Well, well, so the example that's been put out lately, and I, to be fair, I haven't watched this, but um, they did a recent, or Hollywood put out a recent film adaptation of Macbeth where, um, Training Day. What's his name? Denzel Washington. Yeah. Denzel Washington is cast as Macbeth. And apparently there were some people who were like, oh, well, Macbeth is a medieval Scotsman. There's no way that he's black. And I'm like, you know, I don't really care because I suspect that the justification for casting Denzel Washington as Macbeth was not, oh, we need a black guy. No, it's based it on was, the fact that he's an amazing actor. Yeah, he's a freaking phenomenal actor. I would have been just as happy with Idris Elba. Yeah. Like, Idris Elba's a really, exactly. really good actor. <laughs> exactly. Say whatever else you want about him. He's a really, really good actor. So I don't care. If you pick an actor to portray a character in a film based on their talent, go for it. I don't care. But to do it out of wokeness, like to make Superwoman <clears throat> or Superman bisexual... I mean, the fact that sex is even playing into Superman is absurd. But to exactly. be fair, I don't know a lot about comic book universes. Yeah, but that's so I don't that, know that's what they're that. starting to do is to turn all these right. superheroes into bisexual. Or um, Disney, apparently, there's like a new Buzz Lightyear movie coming out where there's like the first um, 
same sex kiss between they do realize they're cartoons right but still they're 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 doing this whole woke thing like buzz lightyear has no gender you know they're taking away the hero archetype again well they're it's something that they're taking it away they're destroying it yeah that that's part of the problem because like the the so, so like we've already said the gravest cultural appropriation and I, I still really hate using that term because i don't like the connotations even though I think that Gwillem's uh, well, there's a way to take good exactly. There's a way to take things take things back. Like you know, when you hear cultural appropriation, if you know more specifically what it refers to versus just like 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 right. we said like Taco Tuesday or uh, white woman having having dreadlocks, it's like that's not cultural appropriation. Right. We 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 appropriate cultures all the time, but whether or not we do it, you know, well, rightly. If if anyone would like to find a, a culture in isolate that has no other shall we say inputs yeah that have defined it i defy them that doesn't exist well what <laughs> what about protestantism for example well i mean yeah. as far as cultural appropriation well I, I i hesitate to use that because i dislike because so not to is, bash is, on our is, protestant is anyone, brothers and sisters but more so like anyone who's familiar with church history will be aware that the dogmas and practices of Protestantism are really novel for the most part. There are some aspects of them that are very old, but a lot of it's extremely novel. However, just because, say, the Martin Luthers, John Calvins, and Ulrich Zwingli's of the world were um, what we would classify as schismatics, or if you're going to be really ballsy heretics, which I'm not going to do, um, just because they were innovationists, doesn't mean that the people who are 300 or 400 or 500 years downstream from what they have done are intentionally partaking of that, knowing that they are, you know... Heretics or schismatics. They, they, well, they've inherited it. They don't know. Exactly. I mean, they you do. and I were that way. Well, right? no, exactly. We had no idea. I had no idea that there was such a rich church history or there was such thing as a liturgy or, right. even, or even a Catholic mass. Right. You know what I mean? And so there, there is that notion... You, you could say that those movements are engaging in cultural appropriation, but it's not intentional, it's not conscious, and it's not in bad faith, right? That's the tradition that they've received. So you, you really can't fault them for that. No. But to give an example of a King Arthur, a modern King Arthur adaptation... Real, real quickly. Cheers, brother. Cheers. It is... It, wine, that's pretty good. It is uh, Sunday... So we're, uh, yes, on, on the days of the week that end with Y other than Sunday and Saturday, I drink kvass. <laughs> and I, yeah, I've decided to give up beer for Lent, which has been giving up meat and cheese. Okay. I would rather have cheese than beer. <laughs> 110%. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Um, but to give an example of a King Arthur movie that is not necessarily engaging in cultural appropriation, but is just giving primacy to some things that are maybe a bit absurd, right? Is the King Arthur movie that was done with Clive Owen and Kira Knightley and, uh, oh, Hell's Bells, who are the other actors? Um, Definitely A-list actors. Yeah. Like, terrible movie. Yeah. Terrible, terrible movie. I mean, cinematically filmed great. Uh, <laughs> but... But in general. Ah, Mads Mikkelsen. That's what I was yeah. looking for. I, he is a fantastic actor. Very underrated. I love Mads Mikkelsen. Um, 
but he that that movie is just adding a, an overemphasis on freedom to the King Arthur myth, which, if we're going to be honest, is kind of there to an extent. Not, not as, not in the sense that they're trying to portray. Not not as aggressively as they do in that film, and it, you know, definitely not in the seventeen seventy six mode of freedom, which is what they kind of insinuate. And they get some things culturally wrong with Rome and with the way that Britain would have functioned at the time and the way the Anglo-Saxon invasions would have functioned. But nevertheless, it's not in, it's not engaging in intentional, um, what's the word, mutilation of the King Arthur myth. It's yeah. just privileging one thing more than ought to be done, right? So, I mean, to an extent, I guess you might say that there's some cultural appropriation. But you contrast that with a movie or with a comic book of King Arthur called, I believe it's called... King Arthur 3000 or something like that? Have I, haven't, I haven't seen that. Neither have I. I heard about it, and once I heard about it, I knew I would never read it. Well, it's something maybe we could but look at. What happens there is, because as everyone knows in King Arthur, right, Lancelot and Guinevere are fairly notorious adulterers <laughs> in that series, and that's one of the reasons why Guinevere seems to be barren, because King Arthur can produce children. That does happen. His bastard son Mordred is who kills him, right? But Guinevere is childless. However, in this King Arthur 3000, apparently the premise is something along the lines of there's a cause or like a galactic level threat that somehow leads to King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table being resurrected in the year 3000. Right? So really weird already. Strange premise from the get-go. But the way it ends, from what I've been told, is King Arthur sacrifices himself and in either right before he does so or as it's happening he blesses arthur and guinevere to marry after finding out that guinevere is pregnant with lancelot's child (laughs) that is cultural appropriation because the way that that is supposed to end the way that every other myth ends it is lancelot becomes a hermit (laughs) and goes and lives a life of repentance and guinevere becomes an abbess and lives a life of repentance and only sees Lancelot one more time as she's dying. Or no, no, she doesn't. He di- she, she dies and Lancelot goes to her burial and then he dies. So King Arthur 3000 is cultural appropriation. It is intentionally abusing the Arthurian mythos to make it modern. As is the, the movie we, we watched right. last night. You know, they're intentionally bastardizing right. symbolism, saints... Uh, that's still a, a night everything about it you know and and like i said many times you, you can like the way it's filmed but if you can look at it at the at the deeper meaning in it it's blasphemous the film itself is is complete right. blasphemy and it, and yeah it's, it's the spirit of the age where we're seeing them trying to invert everything good and that's why you know jonathan pajot and and like we've talked about uh, people like you know Doc and Storm and and hopefully we we can be on the same page as like you know reenchanting right or bringing a sense of enchantment back into the world through storytelling and I encourage you if you are a Christian if you're an Orthodox Christian to not you know I mean this this is you know Lord willing not to lay down your pen or right. or to to not pick up your camera. I encourage you to do these things to glorify God and to bring a sense of, you know, of righteousness and, and sanctity back into the world. Because when we see that a movie like this sells out 
and becomes a, a box office hit, it's it's really disappointing because this is some people have never heard of King Arthur before this movie, and then this is what they think King Arthur and right. and and the Green Knight and uh, Sir Gawain are about, and it's they've never heard of Winifred until this, and then they think Winifred is, you know, well. not Winifred. <laughs> so so yeah, I mean, I I, I agree with you. It's our, it's our duty as Christians and as as followers of Christ to to bring a sense of of, of sanctity back into the world and right. and it's you know it's slowly happening. There's like I'm not sure if you could call it like a great revival, but I'm seeing a lot of people really striving and pushing to to bring this back in, into you know into the spirit of the age and and kind of fighting against it. And it's you know it's a spiritual warfare that that is ongoing. It, it's not going to stop in it. You know, it's, it's been going for, for many, many, many years, but it's something that, you know, we're, we're called to do obviously with the guidance of your spiritual father, or sometimes God, you know, has us lay down our talents to pick up other things. You know, I've, I've struggled greatly with not doing photography as much as I want to, or, you know, doing partaking in the things that I want to, but I'm realizing there's a, a deeper, reason behind it and it's it's hard at first but i think you know we're called we're called to do this we're called to be the men and women that christ has has allowed us to be you know and it's up to us if if what you're doing can't be placed on the sacrifice placed on the altar as a sacrifice to god don't do it yeah that's a good way of putting it but at the same time if you can offer something to god you need to try and, the, and pray on it, right? The you know a lot of a lot of people criticize movies uh, or, or works of art because they are too they they follow too many particular too many archetypes, right? It's like oh well you know that had to have the hero's journey and it played out this way and that's just kind of obnoxious and it's like well it may not be original but also consider this archetypes exist for a reason, yeah. You know, there, there's a reason why, as much as a lot of people dislike Joseph Campbell, there's a reason why he made the connection that Luke Skywalker is Christ, right? God forgive me for saying that. I dislike that phrase very much, but he's not wrong in the archetype. Yeah. We tell those kinds of in an stories, archetypal way. Right. We tell those, those kinds of stories. Exist he's a he's a save a he's a savior. Right. Th- those kinds of stories exist. And it's it's a it's a, a mythological. It's not like. Uh, Luke Skywalker is Christ. It's not. He's not God incarnate. No, he, it's it's he a story, exactly. Story and we're all called to be Christ in the midst. Right. You know, we all have that potential within us. There, there's nothing wrong with re, with retelling old stories in new ways, as long as you recognize that the archetypes that are there are good archetypes that belong there. Yeah. Right. Like there, there's a reason that the King Arthur story's been around for 1,600 years, give or take some change. Right. It's been modified a little bit. New details have been added. New characters have been added. You know, Lancelot's actually a fairly late character. He doesn't and, exist in a lot of the new, the older stories. But there's but, also a reason that has been modernized. Right. You know, there's a reason they're taking these things from us. And they're trying to desecrate them. It's like, it's kind of convenient, but also not at all, that they decided last year or the year before to make a Green Knight movie. You know? Yeah. When the world is falling to pieces... So Make to a movie speak, where the world is inverted. Exactly. So, right. Tell tell a better story. I believe it was Madeline Langle that said something along the lines of, 
show the world a light so lovely or something to that effect. I forget what the proper quote is, yeah. but that's that's what we have to do. Our stories are better. We have to tell them. Yeah, <laughs> so if if anybody that's listening to this, if you're a writer, if you're an artist, if and you know, I'm I'm not opposed to you not being orthodox. If you have a story that reenchants the world that is full of beauty from a Christian perspective, send us a message. We'd love to have you on. We'd love to possibly feature you in, in one of the magazines. Uh, there's some stuff we're talking about in the future as far as publication, uh, Lord willing. I think that it is very important for us to... It would be great to see this movie done the right way. Eventually, oh, it would a, be right. A, a real Green Knight movie would be awesome. Exactly. So, you know, Lord willing, these type of things can happen. And, you know, that's that's why we're doing these type of videos to kind of show the contrast between the spirit of the age and then the spirit of God. And it's, like I said, it's, it's, it's a war. It's an all-out war. And Hollywood and the elites are doing everything they can to completely destroy what is beautiful and to put it like, like the movie, the movie was dark. It was depressing. I didn't come out of watching. I mean, I've watched it multiple times just to try to pick up on it, but I don't feel good after I watch that movie at all. So yeah, I don't know. Do you have anything else else to say? We're, we're nearing two hours. I think, I think that's kind of a good, good time to, to end it. I would like to observe that you thought we could do this in an hour. I knew, I, I knew we couldn't. <laughs> I thought one hour for for listeners and then one hour for Patreon, but I I think we'll start on that next week. We'll we'll come up with a topic and yeah, make sh- make sure to like, subscribe and and subscribe to the Patreon. It really helps us out, even if it's five bucks a month. That that pays for us to be able to sit down and have a cup of coffee and and meet up and discuss ideas and ultimately. And also. Leave us some comments. I know yeah. uh, one, there, there was on the last video we did about um, St. Patrick and St. David, there was some discussion about some, there, there's a comment or two that were left that were uh, somewhat critical. And I'm not saying this in a negative way. And no, we to, appreciate to the, it to the people who left those comments. I appreciate them, but shout out, shout out to crispy. We're going right. to, we're going to reply to your comment uh, privately <laughs> and well, maybe I, I might make a, a video rebutting some of the points or talking about some of the points, but Either way. We're open to discourse and we're open to either to learn things as well. Yeah. Lest lest the history of this podcast be forgotten. The idea was born in a bar that I was notorious in for being Socrates, for lack of a better phrase. We're just wandering around and people saying, oh, what do you think about this? And I'm going, oh, what? You think that? Yeah, That's pe- absurd. <laughs> people coming up to you telling that their boyfriend is possessed and oh, yeah, me, me almost getting kicked out because some guy wanted to... Well, we won't, fight me we, yeah we but but i'm that. just saying like but yeah the, the possession conversation was real and that wasn't fun the, <laughs> that this was podcast stemmed from us you know it's not like we got drunk at this bar but from us having a few beers and me saying hey let's start a podcast so we're completely open to all comments you know um shout out to crispy johnson i know you commented on the last video and yeah i'm not i appreciate the comment exactly brother. and as well as the um someone commented on that they would like to see a podcast not talking about the war, and just to touch on this briefly, we, we've we decided to completely stay out of that topic as far as even having a podcast or an episode on it. And I will, I will, I will say this again, pray for both Ukraine and Russia. This is not me bringing it up. It's, it's just our duty as Orthodox Christians and as Christians in general 
to pray for the those who are suffering in the world. You know, when I when I pray at night, I say, you know, Lord, have mercy on all those who are suffering, Christian and non-Christian. It's just, I think it's our duty. So, you know, we're not, whether Nathan has a certain view or I have a certain view, it, it doesn't matter. That's not what we're here to do. So, yeah, if you have... everyone knows I don't have views. I have the correct opinion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very seldom do I get to put you on your back foot, so I have to take the opportunities when they arise. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. But um, there was a quote that I wanted to to end the podcast with, if, if that's okay. For sure. It's a quote from C.S. Lewis, and it says, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. And I think that's very relevant to... It's a very fitting Lenten quote. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If, if, if you want something that makes you comfortable, Christianity is, is not that. You know, it, there's a lot of struggle, but um, the homily we saw today was, was what kind of fits into that where, you know, we're in this, this race, so to speak. It's not an easy race. The saints and the martyrs and Christ himself are cheering us on to get through these things, especially times like Lent. So just hold fast. Uh, or what is it? Uh, what was the quote from that we read the other day? I, I, hold fast and and do the little things. Ah, I believe. Yes. Do do the little things. Do the first. little things. So pray and repent and confess and, and go to liturgy and like and subscribe. No, I'm just kidding. As a last <laughs> word to any non-Christians who are listening, if in opposition to that quote, you are looking for something to make you happy and comfortable. Um, when you sicken of that, when you're weary of pursuing that thing that you can never possess, turn to Christ. And if we're still kicking, send us a message and we'll pray for you. Yeah. It's a, it's a, I mean, I don't know how to put it. I'm like happier than I've ever been, but it's like a long, longful sorrowing. Hmm. I, I don't Perhaps know. you're looking for the word, uh, yeah, it's like not that we're not happy. I mean, Nathan's ecstatic. <laughs> no, but in all honesty, yeah, I wanted to end it with that quote. And I think maybe I've been having this idea of starting or ending with a quote. And I'm also looking for things to disturb Nathan. So if you have any did you know facts that will make Nathan cringe. To be uh, fair, you made me watch the Green Knight movie. So that was ours that for the was week. Pretty bad, <laughs> exactly. So, did you know that Nathan hates Hollywood movies about King Arthur? But yeah, yeah with, with, bad. with that, so bad. with that being said, I hope you enjoy this episode. And yeah, send us a message. We're here for you. If if you'd like us to pray for you, please don't hesitate to ask. And yeah. God bless and have a blessed Lent. May God be with you, and we will see you soon. Cheers.